It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Well, as you know, the Adult in the Room podcast has centered recently on some really big legal cases. In just a moment, we'll talk with our new friend, Nate the Lawyer, about two of them. Kyle Rittenhouse trial and the trial of the men convicted of gunning down the renowned burglar Armand Arbery. And in this update, since we initially published this podcast episode, there's news in another case. Jesse, Jesse Smollett, a former star on the TV show Empire, is accused by everyone, local, state, federal authorities, of conspiring with a couple of friends to beat him up to create a fake race hoax, a race crime, a hate crime that he had to create because apparently there are just too few out there. And he did it, of course, to make himself a more sympathetic character, draw attention to himself because he felt he was being underpaid on the TV series Empire. In the end, he was written off the show and the show did a slow fizzle. As radio host Clay Travis said right after Jesse Smollett tried to sell his incredible story, it seems that the demand for racist incidents far exceeds the supply. And that story, the only people who believed it, it turns out, were leaders of Black Lives Matter. The comedian Dave Chappelle knew soon after the incident was reported that the story was ridiculous, as did most of us, looking around going, does anyone actually believe this story? (laughs) So Chappelle put the lie to Jesse, or should I say Juicy Smoulier's obviously fake hate crime, in which he hired two black guys to play white guys, wear MAGA hats, splash him with bleach, and hung a noose around his neck, and then yelled at him at 2 o'clock in the morning in a below zero night of uh, January 2019 in Chicago. And hey, this is MAGA country. Don't ever forget what happened to that French actor. You know what I'm talking about? Juicy Smoulier. He's a very French, very famous French actor. <laughs> Y'all never heard of Juicy Smoulier? Juicy Smoulier is an actor from France. And he became famous on a show called Empire. <laughs> One night, he was in Chicago late at night and was the victim. <laughs> he was the victim of a, a racist and homophobic attack. You see, Juicy Smoulier is gay and he is black, not just French. Jesse was found guilty of five of six counts of federal disorderly conduct charges against him. He lied to local, state and federal officials about his fake attack by at least one white man who attacked him with his Subway sandwich still intact. No, he wasn't attacked with the sandwich. Uh, Jussie Smollier, Juicy... (laughs) I can't can't say his name without saying that now. Juicy Smollier. Well, 
He didn't attack him with the sandwich. <laughs> Jesse Smollett still had his Subway sandwich in his hand. And that, according to one police officer who worked on the case, a former chief of police actually, said that was pretty much the tell. I mean, how do you go in the middle of the night somewhere, uh, you've just picked up your Subway sandwich, you are walking and expecting your guys to come and beat you on cue, and nothing happened? You didn't drop the sandwich? I mean... I mean, what? (laughs) I'm sorry to laugh because there's a very serious aspect of it. So he was found guilty of five of the six counts. And, you know, they splashed bleach on him. They hurled racist and anti-gay slurs and they put a noose around his neck. And all the while, his sandwich was in perfect, perfect shape. So Jesse has ridden his fake story all the way to the top and back down again, being found guilty. Indeed, there are many fake racial attacks. I did a piece on just a handful of those over at PJ Media. So check it out. I think it's in the show notes. There was one I want to mention. Uh, There was the flying tortilla tale from Coronado in which a parent quote-unquote, threw a tortilla at a student from an opposing basketball team uh, who was Hispanic. So I guess the the team came from a uh, largely Hispanic school, populated school. Well, you're not going to believe this. (laughs) But the so-called parent who threw the tortilla was a guy who wasn't a parent of anybody who went to the high school. He also wasn't someone who'd ever come to one of the games. It was a critical race theory proponent who was a local Democratic activist who was also a union activist. You sensing a pattern here? Who wanted to create an incident because parents at the local high school were fighting critical race theory and did not want it in their schools. Oh, the activist? Yeah, he used Hispanic. It happens a lot. So it goes. Check out the story at PJ Media. You know, there are real bigots out there somewhere. You'll find many in Antifa. But what about minorities who have suffered real slights? I'm sure they're pretty aggravated right now with fake Jesse Smollett stories. Two recent high-profile trials have been framed in racial terms. And then when it gets inside the courtroom, nothing. There's never a mention. Very interesting. Uh, Two cases... uh, Well, Kyle Rittenhouse and Armand Arbery are two such cases. And Nate, the lawyer, a law professor, he's a teacher, former law enforcement officer. He's a law tube, a YouTube legal beagle on on the air on YouTube. And he's got a huge, huge following. He gives you the truth on these two cases. The only question is, can you handle it? I knew you could. Here's Nate, the lawyer. Nate Brody is a lawyer, a former prosecutor, law enforcement officer, school or law school lecturer. He's on YouTube as one of the LawTube guys. He's a person who's 153,000 followers on YouTube as he explains to people who are just like me what's going on in the courtroom on any given trial. And he has a lot of experience and knowledge. And he's on social media, very conversant in that, except he lets Alexa spy on him all the time. So we'll get to that, I suppose. Now, (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. And I appreciate you doing that. Now, during the Ricada live streams, this is the first time I'd seen you, and you were covering the Rittenhouse trial. Yes. I was grateful 
and I was impressed. Every time you were able to pop on and talk about the trial because of your ability to synthesize what was going on in the courtroom and do it very quickly and tell us what it all meant. And you did that in seconds. And I just have to ask, how long has it taken you to hone that gift? <laughs> well, it's... um. <laughs> It started when I was in law enforcement. So um, I, I used to have a boss and he was like, I, I don't want to hear all the nonsense. I just want to hear what it is. So, so, we, so you know, um, we just do investigations and so forth. We would kind of distill the information to him in a way where it was digestible, but we understood that he needed to be able to tell the information to his boss. And we had to keep it simple enough. But it had to be technical enough so he can understand the fine details, but simple enough so he can convey it accurately because you don't want to get to the telephone game. I'm telling you, you're telling the next person. Um, so that really helped me figure out just how to make these complex legal issues just simplified. And then obviously when I went, when I'm, when I went to law school and eventually became a law school professor, it really helped, especially trying to take complex legal issues and help people, you know, law students who, who knew nothing about the law. You know, you're coming in, a lot of my um, students would come in from with like philosophy degrees or, you know, so, or, you know, varying different backgrounds. So you really had to explain it to them so they can not only understand both the technical aspect of the law, but just the, you know, quick and dirty five, five minute version of it. And I found that when you, people can understand the quick five minute version of it, then they can start really getting a better grasp of the more complex versions of, um, of what they need to know. When when it came to the law. So let's talk about the Rittenhouse case quickly before we get to the Armada Arbery case, which sure. I know you watched every second, almost every second of. <laughs> and I didn't watch any of it. I just uh, heard a few things that Andrew Bronca of Law of, of Self-Defense had talked about with respect to the trial. So I'm yeah. coming in blind. But now on the Rittenhouse thing, do you see any one thing that you felt was among the most egregious things you'd seen in a courtroom as a law professor and a cop and a guy who's a prosecutor. I mean, what did you see well, there? Well, but I saw a lot of things that were pretty egregious when it came to the prosecution. Um, for instance, the, the opening statement for the prosecutor was essentially just a big lie. Um, he said that he was going that the evidence was going to show that Kyle Rittenhouse chased Joseph Rosenbaum um, and gunned him down, right? Chased him, confronted him and shot him in the back and gunned him down. And then he said that, that he was going to provide the evidence to show that. And then when he provided the evidence, not only did the evidence not show that it showed the exact opposite. And I know just as a practitioner, generally that's not acceptable anywhere. You you can't just straight up lie in your opening statement and then put on evidence that shows everything that you said was a lie. It's like, you know, how are they practicing law up there? And then <laughs> it's like that that's just not the way it works. Um, <laughs> and then just to see like the, like I'm one of and, and another humongous violation was the was the every prosecutor, every cop, everyone who's in a law uh, uh criminal law class knows that 
post-arrest silence, when the defendant's arrested and they are silent after that point, you can't comment and say, say things like, hey, but you never told the police this story. Hey, because you have a constitutional right to post-arrest silence. So when the ADA in the Rittenhouse case commented on Kyle's post-arrest silence, I was shocked. I was shocked to the point where I didn't really understand what had happened the first time. And then when the objection was sustained by the judge, I was like, is he really asking about his post-arrest silence, the, the right to remain silent? I'm like, you you can't ask about that. Every 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 first year law student knows you can't ask about that. And then he did it again. And then at that point, I said, well, this is now becoming, you know, this is not a prosecution. This is now a vendetta. This this is now this guy's seeking a conviction. He's not really seeking justice. And it really it really rubbed me the wrong way about the, my, my now ethical concerns about what was this prosecution really about started to be triggered. And obviously, you know, if, if you watched, you saw I, I made my 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 feelings very, very clear that generally you, you know prosecutors are to seek justice and it really seemed like these prosecutors were trying to seek a conviction for a 17 year old kid what'd you think of the case before you came in um well you know i had um about a year ago i did a video on the rittenhouse case because i had got so many messages about it you know what do you think this is self-defense self-defense and i was a little green and um, this this goes to the streak. So for everybody who knows, I, I have this the streak of calling cases. So I haven't been wrong in the past, I think two years in calling these cases. So it's been it's been a remarkable streak. Um, so so I'm hoping wow. it, it, it continues on. Yeah. So the past I have two to go years, back and look at all your videos. Obviously, <laughs> clearly. So for the past two years, I've been calling them right. So this was one I called about a year ago. After I saw the video, I'm like, well, this is obviously self defense. And then even before, um, after the first week of trial, I did another video saying while Kyle Rittenhouse will be found not guilty. And it's, you know, for the same reasons that I just spoke about before, you know, when the prosecutor puts on all the witnesses that say it's self-defense. It's not really much to think about here, right? It's pretty much self-defense, you know? Um, so going in, I, I kind of already had my, my preconceived notions, but one thing I, you know, I, I, I pride myself on doing is whatever I felt I knew before the trial, I tried, I forget it. And I, and I honestly try to actively forget it. And really just focus on what's being presented to me now and do even doing that in this trial. It was just it, it wasn't obvious. It, it was, you know, I, what's more than obvious. It, it was like it was so blatant. It was just like, I honestly don't understand why they even brought the charges. So, yeah, I, I was I was pretty much convinced that this was going to be a not guilty verdict from when I first saw the videos. Uh, you know why they brought the charges? Because it was so politically charged. Yeah. Yeah. It, this was um, I, I think. I generally don't say this, but this was if there's any textbook political prosecution, this is one. And the one that's happening in Atlanta with um, Garrett Roth is another one. Oh, I'll have to so. pay attention to that one. Now, you talked about the egregious behavior on the part of the prosecutors in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Some of the evidence that they were able to get in was astonishingly uh, outrageous. I mean, the fuzzy video, the fact that they had two videos that were never given in their pure form, if you will, to the defense. Were you were you as offended by that as I was? I was pretty yes. offended. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it's funny because where I worked, we had a policy, just turn everything over, right? Whatever you have, like literally, I take my file and I, t I redact some things, you know, people's social security numbers and things. You redact it and you literally turn over your whole file. So the defense attorney has my file, right? There's no surprises there. Um, and, and they do that also in Brooklyn and a couple of other places here because we don't do trial by ambush, right? We're, we're, we are there to seek justice. That's the prosecutor's job to seek justice. So to have 
a video of low quality, but then you give the jury a video of high quality that the defense has never seen before is outrageous in and of itself. And again, you know, it's, it's, it, it really makes me think, you know, the, how are they practicing law in this, in, in this jurisdiction? Because everywhere else, that would be a total no-no. Like you can't do something like that. That's, mm-hmm. that's not, that's not appropriate at all. I I wonder if you will file a complaint about the prosecutors. I mean, you're a person of a certain stature, law professor, former law enforcement. You currently, I mean, I, as a prosecutor, you're in law enforcement as well. And and here you are, a person who opines about these cases, and you were outraged. Will you file a complaint against those uh, Jim Krause and Thomas Binger? Well, no, I, I personally will not file a, a complaint because generally that, that you leave that up to the people who are in that jurisdiction. They have their own um, like if, there's, if it was here in New York, I, I may do something. Like, I would maybe have done something like that. But there you'd have they have their own professional rules of conduct, for instance, and things of that nature. So and they have a board of people who look at this. So maybe I know I'm um, Robert Barnes. I believe he's practiced in Wisconsin before. He's looking at maybe doing something like that. But me personally, I would have to then get caught up on the professional responsibility of. Um, of Wisconsin, and then maybe try to file something. So you know, my my time is limited. But I, but sure, if somebody does do that, though, I I, I would understand why. I, I would definitely understand why. This is something you would bring up to your law students, correct? I mean, if you oh, were definitely, doing, yeah, oh yeah, one hundred percent. How not to do a case? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and and I also also say this: the defense, um, they they let a lot. They 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 the <laughs> the defense wasn't as they won, but I think they won. Because the prosecution was so bad. Because I, th- I think most people won't understand this point. Um, and I was telling a couple of friends this the other day about the Rittenhouse case. The prosecution gave you two different stories mm. in, a, in two weeks. Their first story was Kyle Rittenhouse was an active shooter who was going around killing people wholesale. And they said that he chased Joseph Rosenbaum down, confronted him and shot him in the back. So Kyle wasn't a victim. He was running around killing people. That 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 was their first story. And that's, that was a story they told for two weeks. And then on the last day of trial, they changed that whole story and said, okay, that wasn't what happened. What actually happened was that Kyle provoked Rosenbaum into chasing him and forced Rosenbaum to try to grab his gut and then Kyle shot him. So he so so that that was the change in story. Now just those two different stories in the same trial for me, was enough to be reasonable doubt, right? Because do I believe what you said for the past two weeks or do I believe what you're saying today? And I think that's what most people don't realize is that the prosecution wholesale changed their theory of the case on the last day, which is generally unheard of. But the judge allowed it, so what can you do? And I'll also say this about the prosecutorial misconduct. The judge said that he didn't believe the prosecutor was acting in good faith. That was an astonishing announcement when he said that, when the prosecutor said, I was that did it in good faith, and the judge said, I don't believe you. That's astonishing. That, 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 you know, people don't, I don't think yeah, people really understand that. how, yeah, especially a judge who's supposed to be neutral and saying, I don't believe you're acting in good faith. You're saying the, the person is violating the ethical code. That's essentially what the judge is saying. They also, let me get back to the, uh, how they changed their legal theory on the last day of the trial and they did it based on a video that they said they never knew the derivation of that they didn't really know the guy who came forth with it it just showed up at a police precinct and a cop Mm -hmm. was able to enlarge the video in such a fashion that it showed something that never actually was shown 
I have a question for you. First of all, I'd like you to address the fact that it was a foundation was never really laid to bring that in. And yet the, the, the judge allowed it. And that's a big thing. And then the second thing is the provenance of the video has been something I've been playing around with. You know, you've got the video that came in. Tucker Carlson somehow got some of it or part of it or what have you. And then all of a sudden it shows up in the case. Do you think that was another FBI video? It could have been. It could have been because I um, let me let me think. Because Who's remember now that FBI company video? went out of business like right yes. after. It's yes. like, ooh, it was like a cutout or something. Yeah, it was it was it was so weird. I don't know. It, you know what? It wouldn't surprise me if it was. It wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if it was. But even even that that video, um, to use it in the way they used it. And the, well, let me go back. The the point that you made before about how it shouldn't have come in, I think this is where the defense failed. The reason why that video shouldn't have come in is because this was not their theory of the case, right? And if they were saying that Kyle pointed the gun at Kaminsky or Zeminsky, the some other some other guy. Zeminsky, yeah. Yeah. There was no evidence, right? They they didn't induce any evidence in their case in chief that Zeminsky had point the gun was pointed at him. They, you know, there was no one who testified that Kyle pointed the gun at anybody. Matter of fact, everybody who testified said Kyle didn't point the gun at anybody. So they so they had no evidence for it. And when you're talking about foundation, they had no evidence that Kyle ever pointed the gun. They had no evidence that um what's his name? Um, um Rosenbaum saw um Rittenhouse point the gun. Mm-hmm. So there was and there was so much there with I think the defense kind of just was like, oh, we'll let it in. Right. It was like, no, why are we letting this provocation evidence in when there's n- absolutely no trial testimony that supports this theory of the case, except for this fuzzy photo. And then they didn't even give us the video. Right. They they kept the good part and gave us the bad video. So there was there was no way that provocation instruction should have came in. There was no way that evidence should have come in. But I think the defense kind of believed that they, I think they believed their case was strong enough where it was like, OK, we'll give them this because we, we you know, we expect a non-guilty verdict based on what we got. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And then and then uh, I remember, you know, very be- at the very beginning, well before the trials started, actually. And Barnes would talk about Robert Barnes, who was at one point eight months ago, Kyle Rittenhouse's attorney, actually, until up until a few weeks before the trial, he was yeah. one of Kyle Rittenhouse's attorneys. And he kept talking about an FBI drone video. And we had FBI video, which was taken from a fixed wing airplane above the fray and then uh, literally the fray, uh, the riot. And then he but he kept talking about a drone video. And I thought, well, maybe Barnes was wrong. Maybe it was that video of what she was talking. And I I just kind of wonder if that drone video wasn't the FBI's. Well, there was an FBI drone video. There was? There, there was FBI, yeah. There were there were two videos. There was a drone video from um there was there was one drone the drone drone video from the company, but then it was FBI drone video. And that FBI drone video, remember they had that it was it was it would, you couldn't really see it, but then they were supposed to be a better copy, but somebody at the FBI erased it. Oh no, yeah, that was that was a fixed wing aircraft video. I mean, just yeah, to yeah. say just to differentiate from a drone. It, I'm sorry, I mean, yeah, you know, no, aircraft, but I mean yeah. you know what I mean? I was just like, well, maybe there was drone video and maybe that crappy video of the hocus pocus out of focus video was theirs <laughs> as well. I don't know. Yeah. I, I you know what? I wouldn't put it past because the FBI has got a lot of problems. I wouldn't put it past it. You know, you saw you saw what they did to, to poor Mike Flint. So, yeah, I mean, this has been they have tainted so tainted their reputation. Uh, let's let's talk about the Armand Ar- Arbery 
case, I keep sure. mis- mis- uh, stating his name, but w- That's all right. <laughs> um, bless his heart. God bless his God bless him, and may he rest in peace. He's dead yeah. because these guys shot him. And what did you think of that case? What were the issues? This was a not a, necessarily a self defense case per se, but it was a the ability to make a citizen's arrest, and which was the law of the land at the at that time. What, what did mm-hmm. you think going in, and what did you think as you watched the trial? All right, so so going in, um, first the media narrative was one hundred percent incorrect, right? Um, and just to be be blunt, Ar- they made Arbery out to be this athletic jogger who was running around the neighborhood and just you know going down the street and was attacked by two white racists who just happened to see a black man in a white neighborhood and gunned him down because they thought he committed some crime, right? That was the media narrative, and it was it was compelling, right? You like oh you see the video like oh my god what happened, then. The trial happens and you find out that all of that media narrative was a lie, right? No, Arbery again. was not. Yeah, <laughs> shocking, right? <laughs> Arbery was not a innocent jogger. He was a burglar. He was someone who was terrorizing this neighborhood to the point where police were going door to door with his picture, asking people, have you seen this man? We want to we want to you know, we need to stop this guy from terrorizing this neighborhood. He had been on the camera for this place five or six times. He had been in the neighborhood, seen in the neighborhood. five. And the most interesting part about it is that this avid jogger in this neighborhood, they couldn't find one person, one person to say we ever saw this guy jogging in the neighborhood. And hmm. that's what happened in the trial when, the, when the, the DA was not allowed to say Arbery was a jogger because they had, had no, absolutely no evidence to say that he was. So that was the first part, I think, when, when you talk about the media narrative. I think in this case, they, they vilified Kyle Rittenhouse. They tried to now make Ahmaud Arbery, who was a criminal, into a saint. Right. Instead of just owning that. He's a criminal, right? This is somebody who was doing bad things. Let's just own that and just let me, let's be honest with this, with what's going on. Um, but the key, the key issues with this trial was if the McMichaels were conducting a lawful citizen's arrest, then they became almost like police officers, right? Somebody, you see somebody, you're trying to arrest them. And if that person lunges and grabs for your weapon, then obviously you, you're privileged to employ self-defense. So that that's essentially what their argument was. Um, and their argument was based on Georgia law's self-defense, um, not self-defense. Um, citizen's um, arrest. Uh, citizen's arrest statute. Um, but... Unfortunately, their attorneys um, (laughs) interpreted the law incorrectly. And that essentially is what got them convicted. Um, If if you look at my my video um, the weekend before, uh, I think Friday after after the judge gave his um, jury instructions, they they went through the charge conference. The judge essentially ordered a directed verdict. Um, the, The way the law is in Georgia um, which is different than a lot of places. But in some places, if someone commits a misdemeanor, you have to arrest them in the moment. So it's it's called you have to arrest them immediately, right? You have to first see it happen or it has to happen in your presence, but then you also have to effectuate that arrest immediately. If someone starts running off or you see them two days later and they conducted a misdemeanor, you can't arrest them that because your, your right to arrest them is extinguished. But when it comes to felonies, it's a little different. In some places, let's say if you committed murder and then I see you tomorrow, some places allow citizens to arrest you that next day for that murder. Hmm. Georgia does not. Georgia says, and, and this is the judge's interpretation of the law, and Georgia says, well, if you witness someone committing a felony on day one, 
and you chase them and you know you don't catch them they get away on day three if you see them again you can't arrest them based on that information from day one you you know that that your right to arrest them has extinguished Mm -hmm. and there are a couple of different reasons for that number the first reason is that what happens if that person was arrested by the police in between when you saw him um the first time and the second time so in the mcmichaels case mcmichaels um, believe that Arbery committed a burglary and in, in their presence on February 11th. So they were there at the house. They saw Arbery go in and come out and they said, well, we believe he committed a burglary on February 11th. They saw the next time they saw him was February 23rd, um, 12 days later, mm-hmm. 12 days, yeah, 12 days later. So their argument was, well, we did see him. He, he did commit this burglary in our presence 12 days ago. And now we see him. So we're going to arrest him now. But Georgia law says, well, even if even if it's a felony, as the judge put down, that if you don't arrest him that same day, you can't arrest him mm-hmm. 12 days later. And the reason why is because let's say if on February 11th, the next day, Arbery was captured by police and he pleaded guilty. OK, I, I committed a burglary. And they said, OK, well, you got probation now and you go free. Then on February 23rd. If they try to arrest him, what are you arresting him for, right? He's already pleaded guilty. He's already, but that's already done. You're, so you're, you're arresting him for something that's already been completed. So regular citizens wouldn't know that, but officers would because officers would be able to look, look it up. Mm. So that's kind of, that's the reason why they don't allow citizens to arrest someone days after the event. If you don't do it then, then you can't arrest them later. Um, now so they that, can't so, do it at all because they yeah, changed now, the law. <laughs> now they can't do it at all. Um, but so that so that's the way the law was read in Georgia, and that was the way it was understood. There was some case law about it too. And you know, as soon as that came down, that you if you don't arrest them that same day, then your right to arrest them extinguishes. Then that meant everything they did on February twenty third was unlawful. Oof. They they legally could not have been conducting a citizen's arrest by the letter of the law. So there was really nothing for the jury to decide. It was like, well, they can't conduct a citizen's arrest on February 23rd on based on information from February 11th. And they and it's interesting because the defense attorney kept that for two weeks. The defense attorney literally was arguing. We're arresting him for crimes they committed in the past. We're arresting him for crimes they committed in the past. And then at the end, they tell the jury, you can't arrest someone for crimes they committed in the past. Wow. Guilty. Guilty. I saw some of the remarks on your video in which you said that was a directed verdict. No, you didn't do a directed verdict. Uh, but by so stating it, it was. Let oh, me yeah. ask you this. So, so the jury instruction about uh, what constitutes uh, the ability to arrest somebody, citizen's arrest. Now, Andrew Bronco was having a huge difficulty with that because the jury instruction was just rereading the law about which all of the attorneys in the room, including the judge, were very fuzzy about. So how is the jury supposed to make out what the hell that's supposed to mean? Well, well, you know, I I think Andrew and even and Robert, um, I think they're being a little unfair (laughs) to the the judge because um, if you if you read the jury instructions, they didn't just essentially read the law out. Um, he did explain, like when you when you when you listen to it, um, he did he does explain it out, um, but it's still confusing. Don't get me wrong; I'm not saying he he made it less confusing. It's still confusing. For instance, he says um, in the jury instructions, he says, you know, a 
private citizen making a warrantless arrest, right? Warrantless arrest is not in the statute, right? Because that's essentially what they were doing, making a warrantless arrest. Mm -hmm. So, and he says that their right to make an arrest extinguishes if they don't do it immediately. That's not in the statute either. So the judge did explain the law out. I think Andrew and um, Robert, I, I think they were kind of focused in on his interpretation of the law and, and, and understand, and, and I, I want to, I, I must give them credit. I believe they do have a great appeal. I, I believe the McMichaels have a great appeal. And I think Robert and Andrew's interpretation of the statute is a valid interpretation. It can't be, it can't be laughed at, right? You can't, you can't just say their, their interpretation is a bad interpretation. They could win. They can win this on appeal. And I think reasonable people can read that statute and come to Andrew and Robert's interpretation. So I, I want to make that very clear, but to say that the judge just read the statute, I think is, is, is miss, is, is, you know, it, it's not really being honest with what actually the judge said and what the judge read. Because when you just go back and listen to it, you can tell he's not reading the statute. And it was actually a longer piece. I actually had to go after Andrew and said it and, and Robert said it. I went back to the statute. I went back to the piece and I listened to it. I was like, well, let me see if he's actually, did he just read the statute? And I was like, no, he didn't read the statute. They oh, did explain didn't. it out. So, yeah. So. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Andrew, oh, so you caught him in something that wasn't quite accurate. So, well, the- I, I do it too. Like, I, like, even with this case, I, just to be clear, for for the escape piece. I made a mistake on the law too. I said, well, escape is generally like here in New York, escape is from if you escape from a police officer or if a judge puts you or sends you to prison and you escape from that, that's technically escape. You can't escape from a private citizen. But in Georgia you can. So that, you know, so we all make mistakes. So so I, I just think they their interpretation, I think they were so focused in on their interpretation, they didn't really understand what the judge was doing. And if if you just listen to the words of the judge, he he's literally just not reading the statute. Do you think that, notwithstanding the fact that the judge read and the, whatever jury instruction it was, and you believe it was confusing as as, as do others, but uh, that it was after Rittenhouse and before Thanksgiving that may have hastened that speedy guilty verdict for all of them? Well, the problem was is that, and and this is why I did that video about directed verdict, and even even and just to be clear, the defense attorney. All the defense attorneys knew it was going to be a guilty verdict, right? Then nobody was surprised in that courtroom. Um, mm-hmm. The DA knew it was, and even a judge said, "Yeah, I know what this what this means, right? I know what this means for you. It means a guilty verdict, right?" No one was in there under under any impression. I think I think the public of it all who didn't really understand the issue was probably you know on tense, but you know if if you, if you watch my stuff, you knew this was going to be a guilty verdict. There was no other way possible, and I think the jury looking at it. The key question in this case was, was there a lawful citizen's arrest? Because if you don't get over that issue, mm-hmm. you don't get to self-defense. Self, right. You only get self-defense if you get if you have a lawful citizen's arrest. And the judge is literally directing them and saying, well, they've admitted because that, that's essentially what happened. The defendants admitted that this wasn't a lawful citizen's arrest for two weeks. So it was like, OK, well, now we know it's not a lawful citizen's arrest. Oof. Where do we go from here? Oof, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of like But it was a politically charged trial. It was a politically course, charged yeah. prosecution. And I think people yeah. were willing to look at that and say, uh, "There's there might be another explanation here. Because people just generally don't go after anyone, much less a black man, uh, looking, I guess, lurking around houses, not jogging, as we were initially told. And, you know, people just don't do that. Um, although... 
I, I guess everybody was willing to believe that that happened. And uh, it didn't quite happen the way they, they thought it was because all these guys, former law enforcement officer who'd been out of the forest for like 10 years and others who said, wait, I want to help. And so they did. And that happened. The shooting happened. Um, yeah. Was it justified shooting? I can't remember. Was the was the Arbor shooting justified? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, no. It, it wasn't the Arbor well, shooting. I mean, no, clearly it wasn't because mm-hmm. it was it was illegal to stop him in the first place. But when the shot was fired, it was done. Why? Oh, oh. If you if you're talking about the the self defense claim, um, if if we're going mm-hmm. back to the, just if if we remove the if we're if the argument, if we assume that the self that the um the citizen's arrest was legal. Then yes, I, I would say the shooting would have been justified because they would have had a legal right to be there. They would have had a legal right to stop him, right? And right. when when you know, just like with, then they be, then they become essentially officers, right? Well, the officers tell you to stop, and you lunge for an officer's weapon. That you know, that's all she wrote. Yeah. You you said you're a former police officer, or sheriff's deputy, or what? No, I was a. Uh, I'm a. Uh, I'm a former peace officer here in the city of New York. So I used to work. So I worked for um, the City University of New York as a peace officer. Then I worked for the DA's office and I worked for the we have a law, the oldest law enforcement division here called the New York City um, Department of Investigation. So those, those are the law enforcement agencies I've worked for. So initially, when we began our conversation, you were talking about Alexa and how your house is run. Yeah. By Alexa. And you said, well, I have nothing to hide. And I thought to myself, that's that's an odd thing to say for a former peace officer who's now an attorney and a defense attorney, presumably. You're a defense attorney, too, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, One of my cases made the, the Times last um, last month, I think it was. So it was that was pretty, pretty cool. What what case was that? I'm sorry. Um, well, um, I had a, a case that I took um, after I left the DA's office. It was a young man. I, I take pro bono cases on mm-hmm. the side. And um, so there was a young man who was at a college and um, him and his friends went to a bar or something. And um, and they went back to the friend's house and he intervened with um, a rape. Um, the, the young the young woman. Um, was being raped wow. by his friend, oh, um, so, but he but he intervened and you know and beat the guy up. Um, so the police arrested him <laughs> and uh. let the rapist go. So in the in that case, so you know, so he needed representation. Now this was a family who you know had very very little money, you know, modest means. Um, so I, I took the case on free of charge, you know, and and just went through it, and I was able to to get the, his case dismissed because um. You know, I was I was able to to show that you know this guy was a rapist, and wow. um, I do want to I do want to give credit to the um, police officers at the campus police who were there. And they, the where the New York City Police Department didn't investigate the rape allegation, the the campus police did investigate because they're a policing agency too, so they did investigate, and then they made the initial arrest of the rapist, of the serial rapist. Come to find out, he was he was a serial rapist. So they oh. made that a, they made the arrest of the serial rapist, and went to the DA's office, and then he was charged with serial rapes. Um, so then it was kind of like, well, now you know what are we going to do? Because you know this, you know it was especially too. He had um his sexual assault was caught. He videotaped his sexual assault. So we had very good wow. facts on our side. Wow. Um, but. So the reason why I was in the New York Times is that um, the 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 way the story went, and th- th- this is unfortunate, but the way the story went was 
the young lady said she was assaulted at the club. And then she jumped in a cab with the gentleman and went to his house and then was assaulted again. So they were saying that that story was going to be very hard for um, that story is going to be extremely hard to sell to to anybody. Right. It was it was going to be hard for a jury to to believe that someone who's assaulted in one place jumps in a cab and goes to the person's house and is assaulted again. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that so so they dismissed that charge um, against this guy because they were saying, you know, we, we can't we won't be able to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, there's just too much there's too much gray in here. Um, so when when that happened, that's kind of how the New York Times got involved because the New York Times looked into this guy's background and found multiple victims, like like five or six other victims Jeez. that he had also video um, recorded them doing this. So it, so it became a, it became a mess. So the Manhattan DA's office um, essentially even admitted that you know this some this slipped through the cracks and they made a mistake. You know, totally vindicated my client. And, you know, it, it, it was a well, good day, but it was just it just shows you how sometimes these things do slip through the cracks. I kind of worry. I don't kind of worry. I very much worry about men on campus, not necessarily because they're predators, but because they are the victims. A lot of times when people just say, you know, you attacked me or you uh, raped me. I mean, they are they're left out hanging out to dry without many rights under was it title seven so oh oh yeah well i i've I've had a couple of cases like that where you know i I had i had a case i remember my first sexual assault case happened with something very similar to that so you know a young lady says something happened you know we looked into it come to find out it didn't happen and matter of fact she straight up lied about it because she was afraid that she was going to be look like a you know look like a slut in front of her friends and you know and you know, this person was arrested. He was charged, all based on her word. And now you find it's a lie. It's kind of like we're going to let everybody go in and you know call it a mulligan. But it's kind of like, well, no, she's you know, there should be some penalty for just making this up, you know. And you know, there, there isn't because they say that if you do penalize someone in that position, it's going to make it harder for other victims to come forward. If you know, because they, they're going to be afraid they're not going to be believed, which I do understand. But that that was no good for that guy. You know what I'm saying? Because you know, he, yeah. he you know was was falsely accused, and you know, and 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 God, thank God, she came forward. Well, there was there was a lot of evidence too to show that what had happened because she was sleeping with someone else's boyfriend. But you know, Oof. unfortunately, <laughs> Oops. yeah. But well, when the evidence comes out that you know that that this isn't what it is, you know, it's what do you do? Do you do you do you charge her with filing false police reports or do you not? You know, what do you do? So she wasn't charged and life went on. But I, I think that there has to be some there has to be something better than just that. You know, we can't do anything if somebody just tells us a lie. I just had a couple more things because I know I promised that we'd limit this. And oh, sure. uh, Nicholas Black, I think he's that's the name of the guy who gave the gun to Kyle Rittenhouse. Will yes. he be prosecuted? Do you think? I, I, well, um, I'm assuming he is, but he just filed the motion to dismiss ah. because the gun the gun was legal. Um, since the gun was legal, yep. he didn't give Kyle an illegal gun. So now he's filing most to dismiss based on those grounds. I have to see what, what, what the judge says, but that, that may, that may be good for him. And on top of that, he, he was, he cooperated with the prosecution. I'm assuming that the cooperation, him testifying against Kyle means something. Um, even no matter what they said, it, unless his lawyer is just that incompetent where you're, you're going to have your, your, your client testify for the prosecution and not get any type of deal or any type of promises, you know, that, that just doesn't make any sense. He testified so, we'll he didn't see. get any kind of deal, though he was hoping. 
that he would get some. Yeah, uh, but that, that's that's mis- that. If 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 that happened, then his lawyer is just then his lawyer is an idiot. There's no <laughs> way. I, think about it. I'm I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having my client confess to multiple felonies on the stand, and and for, for just and hopes to get a deal. No, we need a deal. Or he's not testifying. Mm-hmm. Zeminski didn't testify, right? right. Zeminski didn't testify. And, that, and that's the reason why. He wasn't stupid and his lawyer wasn't stupid. You give me a deal or I'm not saying anything. Yeah, they sure hit a lot of hit a lot of um, folks who could have gone on the witness stand. Um, the other thing is, is that you said you know, I was going to bring it right back to where we started, which was how Alexa watches over you and how you're not afraid <laughs> of anything. But I thought to myself, you know, this is this is a guy who's a former cop. And of course, now he's a professor and he's a person who's in a courtroom routinely. Do you ever talk to a cop? Isn't I love that video about never talking to a police officer. Really? You say you have nothing to hide, but they can oh, twist no, I, anything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I'm, I, I tell all clients, everybody who I meet, I, you never talk. You know, but it's got to be within reason because you got some of the people go out there. And, I'm never. I'm not saying hello. No, no, no. You know, within reason. You know, hello, hello, that type of thing. But if a cop comes to your car and starts asking me questions, then you know, no, I, you know, I, I don't. You can't search my car. You can't do anything unless you got a warrant. And you know, if you're arresting me for something. I want to talk, you know, you can talk to me, but it's got to be with my attorney present. That, that, that's it. You don't know how many times I've gotten to um, a client or even at the DA's office. It's just like people want, because people have this knack to want to tell you their side of the story, not knowing that I want you to tell me their side of the story so I can use it against you. Uh-huh. They literally say that, you know, everything you say can and will, right? People forget the and will be used against you in the court of law. <laughs> no, it's like people just forget that. You don't have to say the can part, can. You'll say and will be used against you in the court of law. But people just don't understand that. And so I tell people, most people know if they're guilty or not of the crime. Right. <laughs> so if you so if you know if you've done something, especially if you know you've done something, even if you don't believe you've done it or you've committed any crime. The first thing if the cops, as soon as the cops read you that right, you have the right to remain silent. And people didn't start talking. I never get it. You don't know how many times I've had suspects where I give the Miranda and say, are you willing to ask any questions? Yeah. It's like, didn't you just hear what the hell I just told you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Help me convict you. Of, help me convict you. And then they go and they give it up. So it's, 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 it's ridiculous. I, but I, I will tell, uh, you know, I'm sending this to your audience, to everyone, you know, be cordial, comply, but do not. You know, do do not talk or to the police or when they when they, if if they're putting handcuffs on you, you exercise your right to remain silent. Period. Thank you so much, Nate, the lawyer. Appreciate it. <laughs> hey, thank you. I appreciate it too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple Podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review plus of course subscribe to the podcast it makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs and it makes us easier to find please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff yeah we're still there using the names victoria taft or the adult in the room podcast on MeWe, parlor minds facebook twitter and instagram thanks to one a cast for imaging editing and production The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up. 
heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, Mischief Managed.